Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Jack Beerworth with us. Now, Jack served as a superintendent from February 1980 until he retired in July 2015, with the exception of three years as president of Outward Bound in the United States. He spent nine years in Freeport, two and a half in Sachem, six in Portland, Oregon, and from May 2001 to July 2015 in Herricks, Long Island. In addition to his responsibilities in Herricks, Jack also served as one of three superintendents on the statewide task force appointed by the New York State Board of Regents on Teachers and Principal Evaluations. He was also co-chair of the New York State Superintendents Association Committee on Assessment. Since his retirement, he has continued his involvement in education, working on statewide assessment issues and on a work group appointed by the Board of Regents to reassess Regents' credits, Regents' exams, and the Regents' diplomas. He was recently elected as member of the Bronxville School Board. Welcome, Dr. Jack Beerworth. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. Thanks. So as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership, and we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Yes, and please, everybody calls me Jack. Okay, Jack. Thank you. So Jack, first question, what inspired you to choose educational leadership as a career path? I'd say I actually sort of backed into it. I backed into being an educator. And then when I decided I wanted to make it my career, I realized that it was administrators who had the leverage to make things possible, to make things happen. And right at that point, I decided I should go into leadership. Mm -hmm. So you were a teacher first? I was a teacher in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Mm -hmm. and then I was a teacher in uh, Street Academy in New York City, uh, which unfortunately lost its funding about three months after I got there. It was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. That happens, doesn't it? Yeah. I was this wet-behind-the-years Ivy League graduate who was going to change the world. My final interview was one of the more profound experiences of my life. Uh, it was in in an old transmission garage behind uh, Lincoln Center. Uh, no longer exists. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. High School is there. And the last interview was me in a straight-back chair surrounded in a semicircle by all of the students and staff members in the Street Academy. And I realized 15 seconds after I sat there that I might as well be who I am because they could see straight through me. And you know what? That was an incredibly liberating moment. 
I taught math there. It was really quite an experience. And then I was uh, a teacher and co-founder, co-director of an alternative high school in Western Massachusetts. So being interviewed by students, that's different. Yeah, they were a school community. Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel like I was being interviewed by the students. Mm -hmm. They had chosen to go back to the street academy Mm -hmm. and they had made a commitment and they were part of a school community. They were determining whether I should be part of that. Mm -hmm. It's funny you asked that. Uh, I never really thought about it that way, but I felt like I was being interviewed by a group of people who had invested themselves in that organization. So, Jack, how would you describe your leadership style? I would say that I try to both challenge and support people. It is very collaborative, but it depends on the circumstances. Mm -hmm. If you have an emergency, you can't collaborate but you do pull people together and say, we got to make a decision in the next minute and a half. I've learned that almost no decision that I make is mine alone. Almost all of them are groups of people coming together. In the end, I have to make a recommendation about a budget. I have to make a recommendation about something else. So it's mine. Mm -hmm. But the content of it came about through a process of talking with other people, beating it up, um, Mm -hmm. trying to refine it and improve it. The process works. Very few of us can make better decisions on our own without other people's involvement. Mm -hmm. And if we do, it's almost impossible to do it consistently, to always make individual decisions all by yourself Mm -hmm. that are better than could be made by a group of people. Mm -hmm. I think a large part of leadership is pulling together a group of people who are talented and have the capacity to work together. They don't necessarily have to like each other. It's nice if they do, but they have to be committed to working together and respecting each other and learning from each other. So in that regard, is it important as a leader to build relationships with those people around you? I think that's the most important thing. Good, effective, respectful, working relationships whether you are the top person or somebody lower down. Having an effective relationship is critical. Mm -hmm. And that means being candid and respectful, that if someone disagrees with you, you say, help me understand where you're coming from. Because sometimes you see things through that kind of interaction that you didn't perceive before. But somewhere through that process, you end up with something that's a little different than maybe either of you started with, but that's better than either of you would have done alone. And you didn't think of it unless you had reached out or they had reached out and built that relationship and talked through and had conversations And been open to listening about it. Having seen that work, it told me to trust the process. I was better for it. The organization that I was working for was better for it. I first became a superintendent in 1980 in Freeport, And at the point that I got there, new teachers were hired by the administrators directly alone. And we put in interview committees with teachers and sometimes with parents. The principals did a good job of hiring people, but I think we did an even better job of hiring people by having group interviews. And it was fascinating to watch good teachers want to have a really good colleague. 
And so even if somebody was known to one or more members of the of the committee, they didn't hire necessarily the people they knew. They wanted the best people down the hall. They wanted the best people teaching the kids in the grade before them. And they were tougher on candidates than most administrators were. So that's the kind of collective process. That, ultimately, it was the principal's decision. But principals who listened to what was happening in those interviews and then made the final decision made better decisions because of that kind of open collaborative process. Now, you mentioned a couple of things, listening, <laughs> which um, yeah. your colleague, Victor Jacarino was very big on trust. We learned a lot from listening to each other. <laughs> I intuitively understand math, science, and history. I have never intuitively understood reading and literacy. I read all the research. I listen to all the smart people like Victor and Deirdre Hayes, Assistant Superintendent Herricks, a lot of people that I've learned from, but it's still not intuitive. Mm -hmm. Never has and never will be. We had a running joke, Victor and I did, talking about poetry because when I was in school and I took English classes and professors would say, here's what the symbolism in this poem means, I would memorize that, but it didn't necessarily make sense to me. It was not intuitive. Mm -hmm. And he would say, but it is. And I would say, no, it isn't. <laughs> and then one time he had to do something with numbers and he made some comment about how, well, it was intuitive for me, but it wasn't for him. And I said, that's what I've been trying to tell you about poetry. And it was interesting because while that was a running joke, we learned a lot from each other through that interaction about the pedagogical process with different kinds of kids. That he's smart, I think I'm smart, but there are things that are intuitive for me that are not for him and vice versa. And presumably if we've got a classroom with 25 kids in it, they're gonna be some like him and they're gonna be some like me, whether the class is a physics class or an English class. And the same is going to be true of a group of administrators, and you have those different perspectives that come into a conversation. And some of it's because of what's intuitive and what's not. Some of the differences in perspective come for other reasons. Mm -hmm. But altogether, they end up making better decisions. You mentioned trust. How important is that in leadership? I always thought it was important. I read a book on research on relational trust. It's working trust. Can we work together? Not do we necessarily like each other, but can we work together? And it was interesting because the research determined that all of the schools with relational trust did not necessarily show student achievement gains. But none of the schools that did not have relational trust showed student achievement gains. Mm -hmm. And that fit with everything that I had known prior to that point. People have got to be able to work in an environment that they respect and trust in order to be able to do their best. That doesn't mean they can't do anything, mm -hmm. but to, guess, to get the best out of people, the environment needs to be one where people have working trust with each other. Absolutely critical. I came to believe that it was more important the more time I spent in education. If you really couldn't trust the people around you, it started affecting people's behavior. And ultimately the kids, yeah, yeah. yes. Okay. People have to be able to take risks. We make progress whether it's a company or a nonprofit, whether it's a public school, a private school, a charter school. The envelope gets expanded 
by people taking risks. And they're highly unlikely to take risks if they don't trust. I agree. That's a very important thing. Huge. Yeah. Okay, so Jack, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? I was thinking about that question and I couldn't really come up with any quotes, more situations. When I was an undergraduate in college, I was at Yale, and Kingman Brewster was the president, and it was in the midst of some pretty tumultuous times. And one of the things that he said at the time was that a good idea should be able to stand on its own merits. And you hear people say things like that, but acting on them is tough. And I watched him do it. I mean, I'll never forget him arguing with, I don't know, 500 or 1,000 of us until one o'clock in the morning about how Yale should become co-ed. And by maybe one in the morning, he said, you're right, you have a better idea. And this whole setup of Yale's co-education was ours, not his. But it's so easy to believe that it's because of the position you have or it's your idea that it ought to be the best. And going back to listening, being prepared to put your idea out on the table and then let it stand or fall on its own merits is really tough to follow through. But I think the great leaders are ones who one way or another get to the point where they do that. So that's one thing. The other thing is one of those quirky sort of oddities. I read a book about Huey Long when he was governor in Louisiana, and he was able to get some money to pave roads. And the amount of money that he had was enough to pave, I think, from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, clearly the biggest, most important road. Very logical. And what he chose to do was to put, I don't know, 250 one-mile strips all over the state. Not logical, but brilliant politically, because then many, many more people got to experience paved roads because they would drive the one mile paved through their little town and then get to the dirt road. And the next time the legislature met, there was huge political pressure to pave more roads in the state. And as a guy who had always thought in very straightforward fashion that you should set priorities and be able to defend them logically, that they should stand and fall on their own merits, all of that kind of stuff. The idea that there were other smarter political ways of going about things that might not be quite so linear. So those are not quotes, Mm -hmm. but... Things that influenced your leadership. Yeah, and I can think of lots of other situations. It's more cumulative than it is some Mm -hmm. saying on a wall. So what type of leader are you inspired by and why? I'm inspired by two kinds of people. I'm inspired by people who can do things and see things that I can't. The leaders of Amazon could see something that didn't exist and figure out how to make it real. Steve Jobs, I mean, so many ways he was terrible. And yet there were some qualities about him that allowed him and the people that he worked with to do some extraordinary things. Mm -hmm. So there's some leaders who I'm fascinated by who can do things that I can't because they have different styles. And then I'm fascinated by leaders who are more conventional in the ways that I was describing leadership. And I see them do that and succeed. And it's hard to sustain over long periods of time to have your leadership style such that it adjusts to changing conditions. I think a lot of that comes about by having 
a group of people around you because the group is more likely to figure out how to change, to adjust to change circumstances, different challenges, different opportunities. I mean, look at all of the companies in the United States that are out there now compared with 50 years ago. The list is very dissimilar. A lot of companies get absorbed by someone else, go out of business, and you can say that of a lot of organizations. It's very hard to sustain something over a long period of time. You know, I want to kind of veer and go back. It's been on my mind, and I need to ask. Before you forget about it. Yeah, before I forget. But going back to that president at Yale and that discussion that you had till 2 in the morning. Or something like that. Or something like that. So who was arguing what? He said, you guys won. You're right. But what were you right about? As I remember it, and it's now quite a long time ago, the Yale administration had come around to the idea that we should have co-education for the following fall. This is around Thanksgiving of 1968. And the way it was going to be configured was there were going to be separate areas for women to be housed so that classes would be co-ed, but the housing arrangements would not be. Mm -hmm. And we thought real integration, dorms being co-ed, and we thought that was important for men and women to live in close proximity to interact socially was important. And eventually he thought so too. I think he was asking us to do the same thing, which is that if we felt that our idea was better than his, then we should be willing to put it out in the open, have it sit on the table and argue about it in an open Mm -hmm. and reasonable fashion. And that if he could persuade us that his arguments were better than ours, even if they were not ours to begin with, then we should be prepared to go with his. That was for him the rules of that kind of argument. And as passionate as we were about our own ideas, he made us see that if you really believe that an idea should stand or fall on its own merits, then you should be prepared to put it out there. And that following through on that was not easy. That's a really important thing. And I think it's a really critical piece of leadership and the kind of relational trust that we were talking about earlier. Because if you have an organization in which a person's title gives them the right to go ahead with their ideas without defending them, without explaining them, I don't think you can have relational trust. It also cuts out a lot of good ideas which is a whole different piece. But I just don't know how you can have trust with people who will not consider your ideas or your concerns about their ideas. So that goes into my next question about building a good team. How would you build a good team or develop a good team? I have to say that's something that I continued to learn about Mm -hmm. throughout my career, and I suppose I've continued to learn even now that I've retired. I think you find, as you're interviewing people for various jobs or observing people in your organization that you might consider, you watch people's behavior. Everybody has opportunities to demonstrate leadership. And when they're demonstrating leadership, what kind of style is it? If it's a fourth grade teacher who says, do you all think we have a problem because I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z? Can we get together and talk about it? Does that person approach that in a way that says, this is my idea and I'm going to browbeat you into submission? Or is it somebody who says, well, this is what I was thinking. What do you all think? And is prepared to kind of give and take and come together with a solution in the end, but also someone who will stay with it, not just 
let the process fall apart. If it's an important issue, even if you haven't reached agreement, does the person persist and say, hey, we got to figure this out. Let's keep talking. What do we need to do to get from where we are to a solution? You watch for those people in an interview. You try to find out what someone did, and then you go check it out because what somebody says they did is not necessarily the case. And then you got to find out whether somebody does in fact do that. And when you go check on references, you got to talk to not only the people that they recommended, but some other people. One of the things we used to do in Herricks, if we had somebody come up for an administrative position, and we have usually big interview committees, including representatives from the Teachers Association, administrators, parents. After we had decided on one or two candidates, I would talk to some references, but Teachers Association people would talk to some of their contacts, and parents would talk to some of their contacts. And if somebody knew somebody who worked in that school district, we would go there. So we would end up with a lot of different perspectives on someone. And that was important because sometimes a person might be wonderful with colleagues and the people above them, but not the people below them. I'll never forget, and I won't mention the name of the school district, but we were considering someone for a job, and I heard from his secretary, and we didn't select him. And I can't tell you how many candidates come in and sit in offices and start talking. Secretaries get a whole different view of someone. It, I think, is really important that who you hire be genuine and straightforward, sort of what you see is what you get. No one's perfect, but are they people who will become part of a team with their own opinions? And you want people who are strong, want people who are bright, want people who can contribute something. That makes the best team. And that's when you have the luxury of selecting your team, right? Yeah, but most of the time that's not the reality. Most right. of the time there are people there already. So sometime part of your job is saying to someone, this is the way it's going to be. Either you become part of that and share or, or don't. And if you don't, then maybe you should find someplace else. Loners, I think, don't work in most organizations. Maybe they worked before in certain kinds of organizations, but most organizations now, public, private companies, depend upon people who have the capacity to be part of a group, and usually several groups, because you're with one group of people about something and another group of people about something else. That's a hugely important capacity. Is this uh, something that can be taught? I think you can learn how to be better mm -hmm. at it. I think I gave you some examples. Or coached, because sometimes coached. it's... Coached. I was going to yeah. say, I was looking for a better word, and that is a better word. I can think of um, a person earlier in my career who came to me, and she was extremely frustrated because she wanted to tell people what to do. And I said, you're really smart, and you've got very good ideas. Stop focusing on what your title is. People will pay attention to you if you have good ideas and if they're of value to people. And she really took that to heart. And within a couple of years, she was an incredibly powerful person in that school district. Powerful because people listened to her. And her title hadn't changed at all. If power is having an influence, she had become an extraordinarily powerful person in that school district. I think part of what helped her shift was how you valued her. And yeah, I did that. value her. I think why she took the advice so quickly is that I was reflecting back to her something that she intuitively 
knew, but it was going to take a leap of faith. And she did take the leap of faith and it worked. But, you know, from my perspective, if someone were to say that to me, they can speak, they can tell me the, the hard truth. Yeah. But the fact that you valued what I brought to the table would certainly encourage me to move forward. And so I that's what I see. Yeah. And as you're saying that, I'm realizing I think I was able to say that because I knew that she had good ideas, ones that were capable of standing and falling on their own merits. So I could suggest that she take that leap of faith because I knew that the substance was there. So, Jack, tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life. I think one of the more profound experiences of my life was when I became superintendent in Portland, Oregon. The district at the time had 56,000 students. And just before I got there, Oregon passed their version of Proposition 13, like California. And what it said was not, in fact, what it did. And what it did was best told in terms of Portland's finances. When I got there, we had a budget of $355 million. And four years later, it was 309 And we had grown by a couple of thousand more students and four years of three percent a year inflation we were really hurting and it called me to draw on all of my training all of my experience to try to hold the school district together it also challenged me to learn how to do some things which i either had not done or hadn't done that much of it's still a problem out there it's still affecting school funding it's not the same it's better than it was but it's had a huge impact and when i left there were people who were telling me I'd done a great job, but I didn't feel that way. I think a lot of times in analogies, and I struggled for a while to think of the analogy, then then it came to me. It would be like if you were a brain surgeon where you operate for some long period of time and the patient dies. Now, not that Portland, Oregon died, mm -hmm. but the result wasn't what I wanted it to be. It was probably the first time in my life that something that I had really deeply cared about had really not come out the way I had wanted. Mm -hmm. And that was a pretty profound experience. For the last year or two that I was there, I really didn't sleep more than about three hours a night. I'm a problem solver, and I kept trying to think of what it was that I could do that would solve the problem. And I think we did a pretty good job of coping with the circumstances, but that was a really profound experience. Everybody says, oh, you did a great job, but that's not what you feel. Right. The whole objective is to have the person survive. Mm -hmm. And it was particularly tough because our three kids were in the school system. So it was their lives and the lives of 56,000 other kids who I was trying to do the best for. Do you feel like it was a failure? It was a failure in the sense that the results were not what I wanted. What wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did and that I, shape your life? It became part of me. It made me much more conscious of those kinds of experiences. And it made me much more conscious of other people facing similar challenges. I suppose it made me more sensitive to that. It also kept making me think about how you structure things so that you do have successful results. If the goals are that important, then your job is to keep figuring out how to make it happen. Making it happen is critical. Doing a great job and not having the results is not a great job. You know, and I, I look at the world of education and I know we can do better. 
I know that kids can achieve at much higher levels, and it kills me that they're not, that we have not done what I think is possible. And for me, that's the benchmark against what's possible, not relative to something else or relative to failure. It's how close are you coming to what's possible? And if you know that things are possible and you're not getting there, then you got to figure out how to make them happen. You know, there's a book out. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. <laughs> and I good. think in both cases you, you learn. Yeah. But um, quite often in, in our perceived failure or when we feel that failure, there's a lot to learn from that. I learned a lot from Al Shanker, the president of the Teachers Association. Mm-hmm. I loved his columns. And he had a number of columns, but one that said that you've got to make sure that if you have this great idea, what are the results that it produces? And he said, the problem with way too many educational reforms is that we assume that just because they're brilliant, that's great. But if they don't achieve the results, then they really aren't very good at all. So how important is coaching for a leader? Huge, huge. Coaching of all kinds. Let me start with the hardest. Jane Meduno taught me this term, having difficult conversations. I think I had done that, but she made me more conscious that if I was bothered by something, that I really needed to intervene and have a difficult conversation. She was the one who prompted me to use that term, saying to somebody, I think we need to have a difficult conversation. So there's that kind of coaching. The nice kind of coaching is like the circumstance with the woman that I was telling you about that had gained the power. That kind of coaching is fun. First of all, I knew there was a high likelihood that it would succeed because she was smart, she had good ideas. That's easy coaching. The other part is the hard coaching. But if you believe that everybody can get better, including yourself, then coaching is part of the means by which that gets transferred. I learned an enormous amount from my father who hardly ever explicitly coached me, but I learned. And as I got older, I learned that even some little quirks I had learned by osmosis. But some of it is by making it explicit with people. You see things in people, and you invite people to coach you. I was constantly learning from people, even simple things. We used to circulate memos among ourselves, and... I would say that a fairly high percentage of the memos that I wrote during the 14, 15 years I was in Herrick's went past two or three other people's eyes, and they did the same with me. And they weren't doing it because I was their boss. They were doing it because it was the same reason that I was sharing stuff with them. They wanted Um, input. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and another set of eyes. Mm -hmm. And the memos became better. You know, I think that's something that somebody going into leadership needs to learn. They need to be open with other people. But anyway. Okay. So tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped your life and the life of those around you. I can't think of sort of any single defining moments. I suppose in some ways holding the Portland School District together as we dropped from 355 million to 309 is maybe one of the most profound things that I ever did. Right around that time, the end of that process, I was there for another two years. We decided we really needed to do something dramatic. And we had a rally at the Rose Garden with 17,000 people inside and another 17, 18,000 people outside marched through the streets of Portland, 35,000 people. As far as I know, the largest demonstration on behalf of education in the history of the United States. It was quite a moment. 
it didn't turn the situation around. It might have stopped us from falling further. But holding the district together under those circumstances, I'll never forget the first year we were out there, my birthday in March, I went up to the third floor of our house and sat the whole day and made the final decisions. And after listening to people for a couple of months, made the decisions as to where we were going to cut those tens of millions of dollars. I think keeping the school system functioning for the students while the adults in the state tried to figure out what to do was maybe the most important thing that I did in terms of of actually impacting kids, including our own three. Thanks for sharing that. It's interesting because I didn't think you would go back there because it was one of your greatest challenges, and I could see emotionally how <laughs> yes, it was. It's, but at the same it's funny time, it, be, it being one of your greatest successes is wonderful. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And sometimes you do both. Yeah. Continuing to learn is hugely important. And that leads to our next question. Many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does do. that mean to you, and what are you learning now? You know, I think that term has become way overused. Mm -hmm. For me, in terms of the things that I'm talking about, it's actually fairly narrow. I see myself on a personal level as a lifelong learner. I love reading. I love learning about things. And, but that's for me. If my job as a school superintendent is the care and improvement support of kids, then for me, lifelong learning of the kind that we're talking about is how do I learn how to do my job better so that it is a benefit to kids? I'll give you a parallel example. We had an interesting tenure process in the school district. When I first got there, the tenure process was for the superintendent to go out and do the last observation of someone. And that was fun. I mean, I really enjoyed seeing those teachers. But Herrick's was a place where if you got beyond the first year, you were almost certainly going to get tenure. We let 25, 30% of the people go who we hired within the first year or at the end of the first year. It was a heck of a difficult place to get a job in the first place. But if you were going to get carried into the second year, you had to be very good. But we substituted for me going in and observing a meeting with the teacher, with their department chair or their principal, uh, myself, assistant superintendent, and we talked to people about several interconnected things. How are you different today than when than you were three years ago? How has that benefited kids? How can you tell that it's benefited kids? If I looked at student writing in your fifth grade class three years ago and now, and there were no dates on it, could I tell a difference? If lifelong learning is to have a benefit for kids, then you should be able to see differences in the student results. Go back to my comments about Al Shanker. It's not a program, it's you. If you're better, then you should be producing better results. And then we asked people, how they got from where they were to where they are now, which was absolutely fascinating because people didn't talk about university classes. They didn't talk about the district's in-service sessions. They talked about learning from their colleagues, either formally or informally. So for me, a lifelong learner is a commitment to learning how to do your job better. It came to me not long after becoming a school superintendent that the district was going to get better, not because we had 
nicer classrooms, better textbooks, even hiring new people. As you and I were talking about earlier in terms of hiring teams, most of the time the people in an organization at the end of your tenure are going to be the same as the people when they came. It's because you individually and collectively got better at doing your job. That's how an organization becomes more effective in terms of producing results. If you do things for yourself, if you do things for others, and they don't produce the results. I mean, it's learning, but it doesn't really have any meaning unless it produces results. So I was trying all of my career to do what Kingman Brewster did and try to live by what I was saying to others and force myself to try to learn things that would actually make a difference for kids. Integrity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to require it of other people, you've got to require it of yourself. So, Jack, what do you do or what did you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities that you have? It's a good question because I think it's really important. About, oh, I don't know, 90, 95% of what I did was pretty pedestrian. I mean, they were pretty straightforward things. They were not what I was really paid for. What you get paid for in a leadership role is what you do in the 5% of your time. So the really important things, the crises, the critical issues that make a difference for the organization. So part of what you're doing, I think, every morning or every night before Mm -hmm. is figuring out what are the things that I have to do the next day that move the organization forward. There's a lot of people who are dependent upon you. They need a decision. It may not be a big decision, but they need you to do something, to react, to say yes or no. Email has been wonderfully helpful for that because you don't need to go back and forth and telephone tag Mm -hmm. with someone who just needs a 15-second conversation with you to get an answer. I remember when I was in Portland and email was just coming on. And it was wonderful because it made it possible for a much wider circle of administrators to communicate with me directly after playing telephone tag with them for years because that's Mm -hmm. what we had. So going back to setting your priorities, you have to sort of say to yourself, what is it that I need to do to, to make it possible for other people to do the things that they're trying to do? Um, and some of those are just simple answers to questions, meeting with people. I mean, I tried to have my door open to people so that if someone just had a quick question, they could pop their head in the door and say, what do you need? It wasn't a big deal to me, but I think that it allowed the organization to go ahead. On the other hand, you then I think need to say to yourself, what am I going to try to do today about the issues that are going to make us a better organization three to five years from now? That small percentage of the time that are not immediate pressing issues, but ultimately will determine whether you're a better school district three to five years down the road. You sort of try to say to yourself, what can I do today to keep moving that forward. Um, So you're always thinking into the future. Yeah, and that's individual and collective. I think one of the most important things 
that a really effective leader does, no matter what their level of leadership within an organization, is to try to help the organization define the aspirational goals that it has for itself three to five years down the road. What's going to make us a different and better um, organization, more effective? And I really do mean aspirational goals. If those are not things that are really significant and will make a difference, and they should be very few in number, maybe four, but certainly not more than that. And they're not the kinds of things like making sure that the lights go on, making sure that all the books are ordered. Unless you're doing really badly with them, those are not the things that are going to make you better three to five years down the road. So part of what you ask yourself at the beginning of every day or every week is, what am I going to do on my part to make that move forward? Some of that may be things that you do personally, and some of it may be things that you do to make it possible for others to move the needle. So I know as an educational leader, you had long hours. I think that was as much my fault as anything else. I remember being at a dinner party with a group of friends, and we were discussing workaholics. I said something about not thinking that I was a workaholic. And I remember everyone else at the table turning to me and roaring with laughter and saying, you are the definition of a workaholic. So so that was a little bit of a blind spot, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, so what advice would you give leaders about maintaining balance? Because that's extremely important. You know, everybody's got their own balance. Working long hours was just part of who I was and am, whether it's doing sports or studying when I was a kid. I just thought that's what you did. So doing that with work really wasn't uh, different. But in terms of balance, and I said this to a fair number of new administrators and up and coming administrators, to make sure that the personal things that you were doing for the ones you loved were always a priority. I supported people taking time for those things. Always did. I think that's part of your obligations as a human being. Mm -hmm. You're making a commitment to other people and that is time and you need to be there. And this whole sort of quality time discussion, which fortunately seems to have faded, this idea that you can be a great parent if you do nothing but then spend a half an hour of quality time with your kid. No, that's very self-centered. When a kid needs you, it's on their time, not your time. And you need to recognize that and say, my child needs me. And whatever I'm doing right now, I need to spend 15 minutes with them. So I would say that it's very important for people who are in leadership roles, actually in any job, Mm -hmm. to recognize the obligations that they've taken on themselves, the commitments, and make sure that they follow through on those commitments. I don't think it ends up being a huge amount of time, but it's a mindset and it's doing it on their terms rather than necessarily yours. Mm -hmm. That your life, your schedule should not revolve around you alone. I guess I could say that about the people you work with as well. There is a tendency of people to become very self-centered and sort of say, my schedule is what determines everything. 
And I think you need to balance that both personally and professionally with other people's needs. And if those intrude on your calendar, then figure out how to make it work. That speaks to how you value people and their lives, and that's marks of a great leader. <laughs> well, I would say it's something that has come slowly to me over time as I've understood more about myself and relationships and others. So if I can pass that back, then maybe I can encourage that. So I hope you don't mind if we go off the grid a little bit here. No. Okay. I wanted to talk about coaching. I know we had a a conversation offline about coaching and how important that was. Can you speak into that a little bit? Because part of what I see is the need for coaching, um, even at a high level. Absolutely. You know, go way back in my career and give a very specific example that actually had a profound impact on my thoughts. I was given the responsibility for personnel in addition to what I was doing in a school district long before I became a superintendent. And for whatever prompted me, I ended up talking to the head of human resources, who was a friend of a friend at Citibank. And person was incredibly generous with their time. We ended up having several conversation over a period of time. But I remember two things that he said that the bank at that time was trying to do. The first was that when they appointed someone, they were considering promoting someone. They did not promote someone unless at the time of the first promotion, they could see the person in the position above that. Maybe not quite at that point, but so they were promoting people who still had very clear potential to rise two steps. And that meant that as an organization, they were not clogging themselves with people who were in positions of leadership, but were never going to rise to the spot above that. Yeah, there was a lid. Yeah. I think a lot of organizations do that. They say, so-and-so is great for a job, and then don't acknowledge to themselves that the person really doesn't have the capacity to go any further. And while that person may do a good job at that spot, for the organization, that becomes somewhat of a problem because then they aren't training people for the next steps up. And then the second thing, which directly relates to your question about coaching, was that they said that they graded administrators, leaders, first and foremost on their capacity to promote people who were their subordinates into higher level positions. So they were placing a premium on people looking at their subordinates and saying, what do I need to do to prepare this person for a higher level job? And that's coaching whether you're doing it or whether you're finding someone else who can help that subordinate. And those two things really stuck with me. And to some degree, I tried to implement both once I became a superintendent in every organization that I was part of. People in leadership positions need to see that maybe their highest priority needs to be the development of the people who work for them. That's what keeps the organization as a whole moving forward. If everybody is looking out after the rest of the group, how can we be better? What makes that possible is coaching, either individually or collectively. It's one of the things that I asked teachers 
about the in-service programs being run by the district. Were they actually making a difference for people? And if the answer that came back was, it didn't make any difference for me, then the in-service wasn't really that effective. Coaching is really about tailoring the support, the training in a way that helps that person become better, become more efficient, become more effective. And that means tailoring it. And I know we also spoke about some mindsets in education where if you need a coach, then there's a deficit. Why do we think that way in education? Actually, I would say it runs across lots of organizations, public and private, nonprofit. But the best ones think more about what do we need to do to move people from where they are, whether that's a deficit or from being great to being even better. No one's perfect. And if you are perfect, the likelihood is that the world will change and... Um, you'll have a need. <laughs> you'll have a There will either be other opportunities or other challenges that weren't around when you were perfect. So... Okay. We all need coaching. We all need coaching, but it's a critical piece of what makes an organization more effective. So it's not just a nice thing. It's really critical, unless your aspiration is to just keep doing what you've been doing. Thank you for that. That's really important. So we've come to our last question. If you were to go back in time, Jack, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Probably not a lot. There's certain advice that I would have listened to then and and did. But there's also a process of self-discovery and learning it. I guess the best piece would be, one, be yourself. And the second, trust your instincts. Speak about that a little bit. What, what do you mean by that? I'll give you a good example. During the course of my career, I've hired an enormous number of people. I forced myself to analyze why the people who turned out to have been bad choices were bad choices. What was it that I missed? And whether what I discovered was really correct or just what I needed to know in order to operate. What I learned was that every one of the people that we'd hired who turned out to be a bad choice, there was something in the back of my brain which said to me, I don't understand something about this person. And sometimes I could pinpoint it Sometimes I couldn't, but there was just a gut feeling that I had. Now, in some cases, what that turned out to be later was that there was some aspect of that person that they had hidden, something they'd done in another job or some personal professional attribute that hadn't explicitly emerged in an interview or in our checking with other people. But I said to myself, don't hire someone who gives you that feeling. And I forced myself to figure out, was there any pattern? And the pattern turned out to be that there was this feeling that I had about the person. Now, did you have a go-to person? Because I've had that situation before where I questioned something and there's something bothering me, but I always flushed it out with one of my coaches. I've always worked collegially mm. all of my life. So I can't really answer the question the way I think you did because I did it on a more regular basis. I think we can all benefit by having really good, smart people around us mm -hmm. that we take full advantage of. <laughs> yes. It's not weakness. It's being smart and it's being 
humble that no matter how good you are, that there are others who can contribute to your success, the organization's collective success. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, Jack, um, we've come to the end. I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Well, it's been fun. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for inviting me. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to our website at masterleadership.org to get show notes for this episode and to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of our exceptional educational leadership coaches that are featured on this podcast. Until next time. Bye.